episode 10 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast, as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week, inside the Roleplayer Studio, I've got Tim Brennan, horror aficionado and writer of a goodly number of role-playing supplements, many of which are available on his blog, The Other Side. Most interestingly, at least for this podcast, Tim's the designer of the Ghosts of Albion RPG, based on the BBC web series. So, without further ado, hi Tim, how's it going? Daniel, hi, it's good to be here, thanks. Uh, so that people get a feeling for uh, what your background is as a role player, I've got a couple of three questions here to start with to sort of set up your credentials, and then from there we'll kick on to the uh, Inside the Role Players Studio questions. So, first up, uh, how long have you been a role player? I've been a role player since about 1979 or so, so um, about sixth grade I got started. Yeah, you Uh, must have been in right from the very start there almost. Yeah, I I had this hand-me-down copy of Holmes Basic, the the old blue book. Right. Um, And we used that for a while, and then when I got into junior high, I was able to get a copy of the the next basic set, the red one. Not not the Metzer one, the um, Mold Bay basic set. Was it the one with the little cardboard dice in it, like you had to put them in an envelope and pull them out? or The the Holmes Basic set I have downstairs has that. My Moldvay set came with the the old marbleized dice that sort of, they started to disintegrate after a while. Yes. Yeah, and, I know those well. My in uh, I forget which episode I was talking about. A friend of mine had what he co- well. I had a dice called the edu- that my friend called the educated dice. He didn't have any of his own, and it was one of those ones that, with the deteriorating corners. And and as yes. he tortured this dice for rolling poorly, he actually managed to knock the corners off to the to the extent that he was actually rolling better because the dice was no longer true. But yeah, I remember those slowly disintegrating in my my collection. I don't think I've actually got any of them left now. I think every last one of them is now. Um, gone in the rubbish bin or, or been lost somewhere along the way. Yeah, I, I have a, I have a D20 that's almost perfectly round now, I think. Right, right. Yeah, they, um, yeah, they just won't stop rolling. So you started off with the uh, the red box and, and home system, and then where did you go from there? Uh, pretty quickly, I went to first edition AD&D, because that's what everybody was playing. Um, that mo- I remember, you know, having a copy of the Monster Manual pretty early, right. and I I love that book, and that's sort of how I judge any new role-playing book I get, is how much does it sort of give me that same feel of holding the Monster Manual for the first time. Right. My first book was the uh, Player's Handbook, and, yeah, I get that same feeling. It's got that very evocative smell. You know, you uh, they – they say that um, the strongest connection between any of the senses and the brain is the olfactory sense, and – that's why smells are so evocative for us, and I still remember the smell of that uh, first role-playing book. I wish I still had it because if you sniffed really hard, you could probably still get that, you know, new role-player, um, new role-player smell out of it. But uh, but yeah, that's definitely something that I hold things up against, and uh, that nice hard cover and and the particular smell, and it was just uh, you know in a way it was a magical sort of thing to finally have my own copy of a role-playing game because until that point I just sort of played along with people that had their uh, own. It sounds like you have a similar experience. Yeah, like I said, with the Holmes Basic, I mean, uh, we used to take it down to uh, the secretary at the school and have her Xerox the character sheets, and she'd look at us like we were crazy. And eventually they told us we couldn't do that anymore, but uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, 
that, that's how we all, that's how we got started back in the day. Yeah, in episode one, uh, I talk a little bit about how the secretary at the school that I was at, because I didn't have any of the books myself, and I'd borrowed a copy from a friend, and uh, he he loaned it to me overnight and I gave it to my mother and asked my, my mother if she'd take it into the school and photocopy it because she was a, a teacher at the school. And uh, she went in there with a the book and uh, the woman looked aghast at her for bringing Dungeons and Dragons in like, I won't have anything to do with that evil book or, or words to that effect. She had a real visceral response to it and and uh, actually left the room so that she wasn't infected by this uh, this piece of work. So, so yeah, I think secretaries and role-playing perhaps go together a little bit. Sounds like yours was a little bit more open-minded than, uh, than mine, but I, I think, I think the biggest issue with ours is, is she just didn't want us wasting her time doing it. <laughs> we, we, where I grew up, we didn't have, you know, we didn't, well, oddly enough, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest right? and we didn't have, you know, the whole issue uh, that, you know, I've heard so many other people have, you know, right. with the role back, back in the eighties. So I mean I guess we like I guess we must have lucked out a little bit, right? Yeah, I I didn't really get a lot of stick other than that one incident, and well I mean that same incident several times because my mother went back to to uh, photocopy other things for me. But um, yeah, I think in a lot of respects I was lucky. But did you ever see that sixty minutes documentary about Dungeons and Dragons? I did with Gary Gygax. I I saw that when I, I I'd like to say I saw it when it first came out. Uh, but that could just be my poor memory of it. I've seen it since then. Right. And I was like, just some of the things people were saying. I mean, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a small Midwest town, uh, you know, in s- southern part of Illinois. And we definitely had those kinds of people. I just never ran into it personally. So you hassled the secretary for uh, photocopying your, your home set, and then you had basic Dungeons and Dragons, and then we uh, sorry, advanced Dungeons and Dragons, and where did you go from there? Uh, from there, I we went off into a lot of different directions. I picked up a copy of Traveler, which for the life of me, I could never figure out. <laughs> and I, I mean, I really wanted to have a good. I, I've had this constant struggle, and I still have it. Is I have yet to find a science fiction game I really, really like. Yeah. A lot of games have come close. I I just haven't hit the perfect game yet. Yeah, I, I don't think it exists. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm a little bit tongue-in-cheek there because I, I'm pretty, uh, uh, pretty vocal in my um, dislike for science fiction in general. I saw Star Wars, and I absolutely loved it. And my first actual interaction with role-playing was, was Traveller, and it took me hours to create a character. And then oh. just as we were about to play, my character died in character generation. And so that was it for me and Traveller and role playing for for quite a number of uh, of years. So I've got a real I've got a real hate on for for Traveller, um, even though you know it it may well be a great system. But subsequently, I've never really been able to get my head around science fiction and uh, and science fiction role playing games. Sean from Episode Four uh, assures me that the that great um, science fiction type games exist, but uh, I'm a little bit like you in that I've never found one that's piqued my my interest, and that may well be. Uh, because I was scarred for life by that experience with Traveller. Traveller will do that to people. <laughs> if I've got one that's the closest, it's uh, Cubicle Seven's uh, Doctor Who game. Right. Yeah, I like that one quite a bit. So you went then to Traveller, and then from there to. Oh, that's 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 the big one. That's the big change in my life. That's when I discovered Chill. Right. And that was a 
horror game, and I thought to myself, oh my god, this is the best thing I have ever discovered. And I had the old pace setter uh, chill. Right. You know, the kind of, the almost goofy art, but it was very evocative. And pace setter was out of Wisconsin. And I had this theory that, you know, if you want to find good horror, you got to go to places that have winters. You can't find good horror from California. Right. Because they've got 360 days of sunshine out there. Forget that. you got to go to New England. you got to go to Wisconsin. you got to go to, you know, places like Chicago, you know, where they've got real weather. And that's what Chill was. Chill was the, you know, the American Monster Hunter game. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And that's when my uh, love affair with the uh, horror games began. And I still have uh, some of my original chill stuff from that time. Right. Chill, uh, yeah, chill Vampires is still one of the best supplements you can get. So you went to Chill and then from Chill to, and this is what, 1983 or 4? This would be about 83 or 84. I mean, I, I spent a long time with, uh, you know, first edition D&D, AD&D. Mm. Uh, college came around at about the same time, second edition. So I ended up playing second edition. And I, of course I bought anything with the Ravenloft logo on it. Right. Uh, so I had all that stuff. Um, took some time away from gaming, uh, probably about the time grad school came around. Right. And then I finally discovered the one game that, gave me that exact same feeling of, you know, holding that monster manual in my hands for the very first time. Uh, and that would be uh, C.J. Carella's Witchcraft, right. which is from Eden Studios. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that uh, that title. What what was that about? I mean, obviously the, the title's fairly evocative of, of what you're going to get, but what particularly about it did you like? It was it was modern uh, horror. So it was, I mean, it, it's, it was very, very much like World of Darkness. Right. And it's one of those games, it was very different from everything I'd done at that point. I mean, I tried playing GURPS. I hated it. I picked up World of Darkness, and I thought, eh, not that interested. But Witchcraft uh, had all of the myths from all over the world. Uh, it put them all together in a pressure cooker and turned the heat all the way up. Right. And it was just, it was fantastic. Everything I ever wanted in a game was there. And the art was fantastic. The writing was beyond anything that I had seen in a you know in a game book at that point. Now, granted, there were lots of really good games out uh, before this, and there were lots of really good games out during this. I just didn't see them myself. Right. But in finding this game is what really reignited um, my interest in gaming because I was I was pretty I was pretty burned out at that point, you know, with second edition AD&D. And this was right as they were transitioning over to Wizards of the Coast. And I was like, eh, you know, I can, I can put this aside now and I can do something different. Right. Uh, witchcraft really uh, changed that for me. Yeah, that's the idea of uh, you having a sort of a soulmate in terms of uh, role-playing games. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what, what mine would be, apart from something perhaps that I, that uh, pe- apart from perhaps Victoria, as I, I've written it. But Chris, episode five, you know, his he said first of all it was Rollmaster and it was Rollmaster. He played other things, but always went back to it because it just felt right. And then subsequently, uh, Mage: The Ascension, 
uh, became his game and, and, and oh. still is. And it sounds like you've had a couple of uh, a couple of uh, soulmates in the in the gaming sense. First of all, chill, right. and then uh, witchcraft. Well, the nice thing is, is I took witchcraft and the sort of the internal story of it fit so well with my chill game that I even I just updated everything I was doing in chill back in the 80s and now it was the mid to late 90s and I just updated all the witchcraft and it worked perfect so witchcraft was actually a much better fit for me than chill and witchcraft was the game I was trying to emulate in Ghosts of Albion I mean Ghosts of Albion is really nothing more than a gigantic love letter to witchcraft right well, don't sell yourself too short there, uh, Tim. It's... Well, they're, they're, they are done by the same company. Right. And Witchcraft uses the Unisystem game system. Uh, Ghost of Albion uses the cinematic Unisystem. Right. So if Witchcraft is a sort of a dark, gothic novel, then Ghost of Albion is the made-for-television adaptation right. of it. I, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I, I like them both. And like you said, outside of something that I didn't write, Witchcraft is the is the game you know that I would play all the time. Right. So after Witchcraft, uh, did you stick with that for a while, or did you did you go on to some of the sort of that must have been right around the time of? Uh, let me try to think. Then we right towards the end of the sort of the cycle for World of Darkness when they'd sort of set up all of their five major. Um, five major books and then they were right. producing supplements and I'm, I'm just trying to think what else there was going on around that time because I really liked the world of darkness so I didn't I didn't for probably about five or six years subsequent to that I didn't really pick up anything new and that's sort of when the when the, the indie games really seemed to seem to take off right well with witchcraft um, I was playing that pretty heavy and basically I just kept bugging the, the folks at Eden Studios to let them write, to let me write something for them, and I kept bothering them, and I kept bothering them. Finally, I think I wore them down enough to where they said, "Fine, you can work on Buffy the Vampire Slayer." Right. So I worked on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, I worked on the core book, the Magic Box. I wrote part of the Slayer's Handbook. So uh, that was, you know, and that uses the same system. That uses a similar system to witchcraft, but the same system as Ghosts of Albion. So I've been kind of stuck in the same game system now for since about '95, right. which is fine for me, really. I mean, I, I picked up tons and tons of other games since then uh, and tried them out. And I've got a GM, a uh, fairly regular GM now, who's got, you know the same affliction that I do and wants to try out all these different systems. So we're constantly trying out something new all the time. So what do you play now? What do I play now? Um, I still mostly stick with when I'm playing or running, I stick with ghosts of Albion and I mix in bits of Buffy, the vampire slayer, angel, witchcraft, conspiracy X, um, all games from Eden, uh, as I see fit. Uh, when I'm playing with my kids, we're still in the middle of a, a D&D 3.5 game that we're trying to wrap up. And I have started a D&D 4 game, but we haven't gotten very far in that one yet. Right. Well, I think people have got a pretty good idea of uh, where you're at and where you're, uh, where you're coming from. So you may have already uh, covered this question, but just in case uh, there's something more specific you wanted to mention, what's your favorite book or supplement other than something that you've written and, of course, Victoria? 
Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> I do. I, I I'm I'm sticking with uh, C.J. Corella's Witchcraft is my favorite book. Right. Uh, if I had my if I had my dream gig, it'd be to uh, write the third edition of that. Right. Okay. So you've mentioned that you didn't like uh, GURPS very much, but so if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, mm-hmm. what would it be? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you think it's badly written. It could just be because it's wronged you in some random way or, you know, it came along at a, at a time when something else bad happened and you would always associate the two. Oh, wow. Um, I have to, the one thing that probably leaves a bad taste to my mouth is those skills and powers books for AD&D second edition. Right. I just felt that they were the epitome of munchkin uber power gaming. Right. And that's when I, when I saw those come out, I remember going to my favorite local game store and I was flipping through these and I'm thinking to myself, I don't need this. Why would I want this? And I'm like, and then more to the point, why would I want anybody at my table using this? I mean, this, you know, my games tend to be, you know, giant sweeping arcs where the characters are already ridiculously powerful. I mean, in my kids' games right now, everybody's hanging out around 18th, 19th level, and we're thinking, hey, you know, I've got that epic level handbook we haven't cracked open yet. Let's get into that. Right. And, but the Skills and Powers books, I think, re- really kind of turned me off. It's not, I mean, like I said, I, I loved D&D back in the day. I still love it now. I play it every chance I get. But those just kind of leave a bad taste in my mouth. Right. I think that that's probably a fairly common thread. And I'm also wondering if perhaps it depends on when you come into contact with those. Those Skills and Powers books have very much this well at least in my opinion the sort of the second edition equivalent of the uh, the splat books for you know 3.5 and 3 you know um, might and magic and and stuff like that and i wonder whether it's to do with age you know when you're when you're younger that sort of thing really appeals to you but then when you get a little bit older and a little bit more um sort of comfortable in your own skin and in, in, in a role playing game you start to see those things as as not really adding anything worthwhile that you couldn't add yourself is that how you feel about them there's that I, I think it's the attitude of the books that i didn't like right is that that oh well we're going to i thought they were over complicating the rules which the whole purpose of second edition at the time was to uncomplicate the rules right and maybe it's because when i was playing second edition i was in college and i didn't buy a lot of the books Right. I stuck with the three main books for a while, and I had a couple extras, and I had like the Wizards uh, Handbook and all of that stuff. But I didn't have like tons and tons of stuff. I never got into Forgotten Realms. I bought some of the Ravenloft stuff, and everything else was sort of a mystery to me, uh, mostly because it was either buy gaming stuff or buy food. Right. I chose food uh, so I could buy gaming stuff, you know, at a future date. Right. And I think when I got to the Skills of Power stuff, I was like, man. This, this just, I think at the time I did feel it was a money grab at some level. I don't want to say that because everyone thinks, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very much behind the thought that game companies exist for one reason. They have to make money. Yeah. If we get enjoyment out of the games in the meantime, hey, bonus for us. Right. But, you know, game companies don't publish things out of the you know goodness of their hearts. They've got bills to pay and their own kids to feed and things like that, too. 
Yeah, well, that's I, the thing about I, um, uh, that's the thing about you know being in a, a commercial business. You have to either resign yourself to the fact that you know you're doing it from love, in which case you don't have really anybody to answer to or if you're going to go in lock stock and barrel like you say you know you've got to put food on on the table and you've got to pay your rent and all that sort of thing so whatever it is that that you're producing you've got to try and sell as many uh units as you can so i I don't have any i don't find fault with that and i know that those types of book types of books are very appealing to a certain sector of the community they're just not very appealing to uh to me so yeah like more power to any company that produces books people want to buy just that uh that's just wasn't the sort of book i was interested in either yeah and i think if you know at the point at the point i'm in now if something like that were to come out i'd be like oh that's neat Eh, i'm not gonna buy it but hey somebody else will get in that's cool oh for sure for sure so Part of the, it was part of the time and the the age I was at, you know, real early twenties. Yeah, um, uh, that that sort of age, you know, you pass the the, the knee jerk, you know, got to have that. I need to max everything out, but also a little bit at the age where you know you start to think for yourself and form your own opinions, and that sort of uh, thing that sort of gilds the lily to a degree because. You know, with your own imagination and your own experience with that system, there's nothing. It, there's nothing that those books could actually could actually teach you. And as you say, you know, just added extra rules for people that perhaps like rules, or like you say, it gave uh, fuel to the to the fires of people that uh, wanted to really max out their characters and and make them one dimensional. So, so yeah. So I, I think uh, yeah, I'm I'm absolutely on board with you for that one. Yeah. So is there anything coming out that you're particularly looking forward to or anything that you're in the process of writing that uh, you'd like to tell people about? Well, if you'd asked me last week, I would have said Cthulhu by Gaslight. Uh, but I just picked that up, so I'm not so pointing from that one right, anymore. Right. Uh, I am trying to get my... I've got two books coming out for the old school renaissance uh there are two books on witches for D basic uh you know like labyrinth lord basic fantasy role playing and then another one that i'm doing for the spellcraft and sword play uh retro clone or near clone actually and that's done by uh, a friend the, the game itself is done by a friend of mine jason bay and it emulates the old sort of original OD&D uh, rules. And this is adds a witch and a warlock class to it, along with ritual magic and demons and devils. And it's sort of my homage to the Eldritch Wizardry uh, supplement that came out for original D&D. Right, so I guess that uh, just like Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, you were talking a lot with uh, Bob Schnoblin about that, uh, about those things. Yeah, uh, well, with this one, this is for the, um, like I said, this is for the Spellcraft and Swordplay, so it's not exactly D&D, obviously, because I couldn't say that anyway, if, even if I wanted to. Right. <laughs> I have to go back and, so what you heard me saying before, didn't actually, I didn't actually say that. Right. I'm indicating compatibility of any sort. Right. Uh, but they are for uh, sort of these old school games. Right. And like I said, I've got, kind of got a thing about, you know, doing witch classes. It's something I've done a lot of both witchcraft and Ghost of Albion and all the others. Yeah, well, when you're writing, if you are not being paid to write a specific thing, 
but to produce something which you're producing on spec perhaps or perhaps on a freelance uh, mm -hmm. basis, they've either come to you because that's an area of expertise that you have or, like I say, you're producing it on spec. But I'm a firm believer in any type of writing that you do. You should write what you know and write what you, you love. If you want to get people excited about what you're excited about, um, then then write about it. If you write about something you've got no interest in, it's going to show in, right. uh, in the writing. It takes a particularly, I mean, it, actors are, are good at disguising who they really are, but I, it's impossible to produce even a performance without um, actually having some of yourself come through. I mean, you are a product of your environment, and even if you are going to portray somebody completely unlike yourself, you know, you'd right. have to have filtered that information about the thing that you're unfamiliar with to start with in order to better put this performance together. So, you know, if you're going to do something like, like this, and for the most part, there probably aren't that many people in the world that are producing role-playing games for a living. Most of us are doing it as something on the side. And if you're going to give up, you know, some of your, your spare time to do it with a view to not really getting rich, then, then write what you like. Don't write what you think is going to be popular that you're writing you know stand for itself and then if somebody really likes what you've done they may offer you some work uh, freelancing writing something along those lines but uh, as a creative person or that is and with my creative hat on uh, I would find it really difficult to produce something compelling that I had no interest uh, or no got no enjoyment from yeah I've had a couple sci-fi projects that have been you know, going back, you know, to one of our first points, I've got a couple of sci-fi projects that I've had rolling around in my head now for years. And in both cases for these, they haven't gotten any farther than, you know, a handful of words on a page simply because I don't have, you know, the background to write those. And with free time being limited, you know, I'm going to write stuff that I know about, stuff that I really enjoy. So I can crank out a couple hundred pages, you know, worth of horror, you know, and not even think twice about it. Uh, I haven't gotten anywhere on these two sci-fi projects in probably five years. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Write with what you uh, write with what you enjoy. Anybody that's listening here that's thinking about putting something together, don't don't write something for Dungeons & Dragons unless Dungeons & Dragons is something that you really like. There may be a market there, but let your uh, let your passion drive your first pieces of work, and then if it's good, then people will uh, will pick up on that, and they may offer you something else along the along the same lines. And you know, don't don't also don't judge your success on on how many people are interested in what you've produced. You know, just be satisfied with with having produced something of your own. It's, I can tell you from experience, and I'm sure you can say the same thing, Tim, there's nothing quite like actually finishing a book and seeing it in front of you with your with your name on it, quite apart from what anybody else thinks. You know, just that accomplishment to be able to... And I, I wrote and uh, I was writing an email today, and and I I used the, the phrase, uh, like, uh, I was talking about being a writer, and then I said, like me, or, or words to the effect that I was implying that I was in fact a writer and it was really the first time that I'd sort of stepped back and looked at the fact that yeah I, I uh I guess I am actually you know a writer having you know having produced this book and and I think that regardless of how many people are interested in what you've written you know just go for it write write what it is that you're interested in and and be satisfied with initially at least with having produced it worry about how many people are going to buy it or want to read it afterward 
Well, the first person when you're when you're writing, and especially you know, like with you writing Victoria or me doing Ghosts of Albion, you gotta you gotta please yourself first. If I wasn't willing to put this game out and have it be something that I would want to play all the time myself, then why do it? I mean, this is the game I'm going to go to. If someone's to say this play a game, the first thing I'm going to do is grab my, you know, I'm going to reach up and grab my own book down mm, and say, yeah, this. And it's like, well, I want to do something else. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. Maybe we can use my rules and then do something else. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I find that um, the, the one thing that I've, I'm not sure if you have experienced this as well, but um, I've run quite, uh, like I've run a lot of games of Victoria, but I sometimes have trouble remembering the rules, and it's not because I'm not familiar with them, it's just that I've rewritten that same rule, or oh, sort of an approximation of that same rule in several different ways with subtle variations on it, and I can never quite remember which one is the one that's in the book. Exactly. Well, I was, uh, I had a, uh, I had a uh, ghost game that I was running last weekend, and I was sitting down with my wife, and she, I was flipping through it, and she goes, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I got to remember how I did this because I, I forgot what I wrote. Right. Yeah. And, and that's not going to look good if I forget, because I know one thing, I know my players are going to forget. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You get those, uh, you know, rules, rules, lawyers that are, um, rules, lawyers that are going to be all over you for, for misrepresenting the rules in your, uh, in your own book. And I, and I unfortunately haven't played with a really serious rules lawyer, but I've been caught out a few times on, on uh, the rules not portraying them in the game that I'm running in the same way that I've got them in, in the book. But I, you know, hand on my heart, I, I do know the rules. I just know too many variations of them to, to remember exactly which one is correct. Yeah, you also know the beta versions of those rules and the fourth revision that you did that didn't work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's, there's, and there are even even today, like I, I read over I read over the book and, you know, there's always little things that you, I mean, you're always... You're always trimming and, and, and fiddling around with it. But it was probably, I, I put it together um, and then uh, I read over it and then I, I revised it. I think I revised it five times before I, before I sent it in because I, I kept a little code that goes with each revision so I know, so I know where I'm at. And the number of, uh, of save points that I had got progressively less and less. But it gets to the point where, you know, you... You, and, I, and I went back and checked this, where you start to rewrite even like individual sentences or individual rules. You, you see the rules, oh, no, I, can, I can express it better like this. And then when I check back, I realize that I've, I've rewritten it in the way that I, read it, uh, that I wrote it the second time and the fourth time. And now the sixth time that I'm going through, I'm writing it the same way again and, and changing in between. So, you know, it's, it's, always, a, a, um, it's, it's always a process, but you know, ultimately you have to abandon you have to abandon it because it's never ever going to be perfect. I, I think that Leonardo da Vinci said, uh, "Art is never finished; it's only ever abandoned." Yeah, or what is it? Uh, I was reading about uh, books are never released; they escape. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's true too. Yeah, you just you got to accidentally leave the accidentally leave the door open and, and let them get out, right? And, and yeah, uh, at, some point, at some point you got to you have to you have to stop. You have yeah. to stop. And that's the biggest problem I run into. It's like, oh, I could tweak this and make this better. I could tweak this. And after a while, you're probably not making it any better. Yeah. You're, you're, you're just moving words around on the page. Yep. And people are going to like or not like it based on, you know, a variety of reasons. But whether I chose 
this word or that word probably isn't it and certainly not worth the the time that I would probably be putting in it. You've got to figure out. Yeah, and, and being my own art director as well, I was always very careful when I when I went when I'd got sort of through my first uh, my first serious revision where I actually had art in and stuff like that. As soon as you start messing around with sentences, it can screw up your pagination as well. So you know, yeah. changing a sentence here can actually mess up a paragraph there, and it's just as a flow on effect. The next thing you know, your whole your whole thing is uh, is completely in disarray. It's uh, it can be frustrating. You're the uh, art. You're also the art director because I'm flipping through Victoria now, and I really like the art. Um, oh, that's nice of you to say. It's really nice, I especially. And I noticed there's a couple. There's a there's a couple of pictures in here that I think we've used similar similar versions or at least similar ideas, and that's one of the reasons why I gravitated towards this game. Is like, oh, you know, I, I recognize this. I mean, I can flip through this, and it's like I'm seeing this. A world I'm very familiar with through a different set of glasses. Yeah, that that was one of the things that I, I really kept in mind when I was writing Victoria. Is I sort of I've got to put pictures in here, and so I need to. Um, I was constantly on the lookout for um, on, on the lookout for art, and I settled on that. You know, because there was no such thing as cameras back then, although there were daguerreotypes, but they weren't used in produ- producing newspapers. And they, so all of the, the pictures had a similar look to them. So I was going through and finding these great line art drawings from um, newspapers. And that really sort of informed the overall feel of the, of the, of the art in the book. And I, I think one specific picture that I know is, is duplicated in both Ghosts of Albion and in Victoria is there's a picture of people in, uh, like it's a, a group of policemen. Um, that it looks almost like a riot scene almost and I know that that's a, a picture that uh, that the two share in, in common so if I was going to give another piece of advice to, to writers is think carefully about your art because if you want to produce a book which looks professional and feels good and, and is cohesive then although really the pictures are secondary to the, to the words to a degree you've got to also think about the, the visual message that you're sending as well as what people are reading because even though they're not necessarily um, looking at the pictures at the same time as they're reading the lines, they're taking all that information and they're looking at the page all together first and they're reading this and they're looking at that picture and so forth and it, and it goes together to create a, a message and I'm going to get really, really boring here for a second so you might want to tune out um, if you're not interested in talking about fonts but I agonised for a long time about the about the correct font to use and uh, I settled on uh, Baskerville 1785, it's a degraded font type but Again, that was all part of the sort of visual message that I wanted to to send with Victoria. I wanted to create that old sort of you know newspaper uh, sort of feel to it. So with those images from the old newspapers, and then with that with that typeface, you know, it uh, it I wanted to create a, a sort of a cohesive message. So if you're writing a game, you know, keep that sort of stuff in mind because even though it's only subtle, things like fonts can actually have a, a pretty a pretty big impact on the on the subconscious impression that people form about the book. Is, is that the sort of work you had to do yourself, or did you just do the writing part for yours? I did the writing, but I actually had quite a bit of input into the art uh, that we used. And because what I what I the thing about Ghosts of Albion is one thing that made it different than Victoria is you had to satisfy yourself. I had to satisfy not only 
the publisher, but the owners of the IP, uh, you know, Christopher Golden and Amber Benson. Right. And they were fantastic to work with. Uh, but we want we needed to come up with a sort of visual aesthetic mm. for and I said, Well, let's what I would love to see is this thing look like an old penny dreadful. Right. You know, with that kind of with that kind of art and you know, it's all black and white art. I know that, you know, all books these days have full color art on the inside. I'm like, but that's not appropriate for a Victorian age. No. Um, you know, it needs to be black and white. It needs to have that feel like it's newsprint, like you bought it on a street corner for, you know, you know, a half a pence or whatever at the time, and you waited a week until the next one came out. Right. Uh, you know, like the old Barney the Vampire. Right. And, you know, I get that same feeling from Victoria. And you, if you look at some of the other Victorian games, too, you know, like Victoriana, they do, you know, something very similar as well. They actually use more photographs than you or I did, uh, which, you know, and I talked to you know, the creator of that game, uh, Andrew Peregrine, quite a bit. And those are actually, you know, photos of his own families, which I thought was actually pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this, though, I used a lot. We used a lot of the art from the time. And George Val- Vasquez, who's the uh, sort of the head guy at Eden Studios, is a fantastic artist. Um, the cover of uh, C.J. Corolla's Witchcraft is a painting that he did, and it is probably one of the most evocative uh, covers of a role-playing game I've ever seen in my life. So we had the ability to do, you know, sort of just this awe-inspiring art or this awe-inspiring layout like we did with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But like I said, what we really were looking for was something that looked like a penny dreadful. I wanted a I wanted a horror game. I didn't want a media tie-in game. I wanted a horror game that was taking place in the early Victorian era. Right. And I think that you uh, you've you've accomplished that. You know, creating that uh, that overall feel for the whole book. It it goes, I guess, a little bit back to that. Uh, what you were talking about before, that monster manual feeling that you had. You know, you picked up the monster manual and it just felt good and it looked good. And, and everything about the book, before even reading a word, just it seemed it struck me that uh, you were saying just everything about it felt right. You know, everything was, was just as it should be. And that's definitely what you've achieved with Ghost of Albion and, you know, what I hope to achieve with Victoria. But it must have been an interesting experience trying to... Because when you're talking about aesthetic, no two people have got the same idea of aesthetic and i i think that if i were working for somebody who had a vested interest in what it was that i was producing and had an opinion about the way that something should look i i think i'd actually have a bit of trouble you know relinquishing that that part of it because i'm so interested in fonts and and you know period art and that sort of thing i'd, I'd find it hard to um, if it was something that I was producing the writing for, I'd find it hard to, to make those compromises. Is that something that you struggled with, or was it a, because there was money involved, it, it made it a little bit less personal? I, I, part of the issue was is I knew from the start that this book I had to serve you know, a number of masters. I didn't only have to write a game, like I said, that I would want to play you know, at my table all the time, but I had to keep the IP owners very happy, which sometimes was a struggle when you're writing stuff and they're like, oh, I want it to be this way. And I'm like, okay, how do I make that into game terms? Mm. Um, The publisher's happy because they want a product that they can 
turn around and sell and make a profit on mm-hmm. because, you know, licensed products, unfortunately, are not cheap. No. And I also had to keep in mind that there was a certain uh, style aesthetic that I needed to live up to. Uh, Angel, the book um, that Eden had produced right before Ghost of Albion, had, you know, gone to the Innies Awards. And I believe that it won. I don't remember if it did or didn't. I think that it did. Uh, so it's a very attractive book. It won, you know, it got major claim for how well it works, how well it plays, you know, all this other stuff. And I was thinking about these things the whole time I'm writing. It's like, this has to be better than that. I mean, I'm going to write the best game I can, but at the same time, I got to think, Someone's going to turn around and, and say, honestly, well, why should I buy this book when I already own this book, other book? Why are you going to give me that this one doesn't? I'm like, well, this is what this has that the other one doesn't. And this is why it's, uh, you know, a better game than that other one. Yeah, that's one of the things that kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, writing what you, what you love and what you're interested in. Because there's, there's nothing there's nothing new out there or at least very few things that are new that people are interested in um and in getting involved with and so when i was writing victoria i one of the major design things that d- drove me towards that era was i i just didn't like the way that cell phones ruined games so I said, okay, well, if I don't want to have cell phones, then I'm talking about, you know, do I want to really write a game about the 1980s? Mm, not really. I lived during the 1980s, and, you know, there's nothing particular about it that I think people would find interesting in a role-playing setting. Do I want to write about the 1970s? Uh, I don't really remember it that well. but yeah. um, and, and so I went back through, and, and I was interested sort of in the, the 1920s, 1930s, there was the, the war years as well, but I didn't really want to write a, a war game. And so I, I gravitated slowly back to the Victorian era because it had a really nice uh, confluence of ideas. There was a certain amount of, uh, there were a lot of new ideas called Darwin uh, was coming out with Origin of, of Species, and then there were still plenty of wars going on. There was the spiritualism movement, all of these things. They didn't all happen at the same time, but but together they created a, a feel that I was really that I was really interested in. And, and I don't think I'm alone in that. But um, that really it really sold me on the whole uh, on writing it, setting it in Victorian Victorian times. You know, just that nice um, convergence of a whole bunch of different things going on at the same time plus no cell phones that was the other that was the other thing what attracted you to the victorian era the th- the, the big issue is with the victorian era for me is just is the gothic horror obviously i mean that's mm. you you think gothic horror you think of you know foggy streets in london you know jack the ripper and dr jekyll and mr hyde and dracula roaming the streets being chased by sherlock holmes and all this other you know stuff that okay none of those characters actually existed together at one point in time but that you know that's the kind of things you can do with these sorts of games yeah yeah and you're right there is a lot going on this is the last time in history where science and spiritualism and magic and all this stuff sort of coexisted and they're all fighting for control. Um, 
after the Victorian era, everything changes. Yes. Um, the world is completely different. I mean, it's completely different during Victorian era. Uh, but, you know, after it, you're going to get into the 20s and the pulps and then the World War II and so on. And then you, the type of gaming you do at that time is all very different than what you do here. Right. And it also, you know, the Victorian era also includes the American Civil War and a lot yeah. of things. This is, I mean, this is a very interesting time, um, you know, in history. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just right. There's. It's just ripe for so many role playing opportunities. I mean, anything can go on. Nobody knew what was going on. Sometimes, anywhere in the world, it took, you know, days to get yes. anywhere. And it's just. It was very different. I mean, if I want to know what's going on in, you know, Zimbabwe, I can. I can. <clears throat> pick up my cell phone and, you know, look on the internet with it uh, and find out in seconds. It doesn't, there's no mystery. I mean, it's interesting. Sure. It's fascinating. I love that kind of stuff. But I get to do that every day. Yeah. 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 And, there's nothing, no, no news stories any older than, you know, than a few seconds, really, as soon as it's up there, you know, you can read about it if you, if you want to. Um, and that goes a little bit along with uh, what, one of the things that I wrote in the book and there was, um, a chap, I don't, I don't exactly know how to pronounce his last name, but I put this quote to Lytton uh, Strachey, or Lytton, I, I don't know exactly how to pronounce his last name. One of the things that he says, and I'm paraphrasing to a degree here, the history of the Victorian era will never be written. We know too much about it. Um, there's so much information available about it. But at the same time, there are lots of movies and there are these really strong tropes that people have about the Victorian era. They've got a really good idea about um, that period in history. So even if you've never really researched the Victorian era, you've got an idea about what Victorians are like. And and I find that you know, like you were saying, you know, you've got the gaslight, and you've got the you've got the fog, and you've got people dressed in suits all the time. And you've got chimney sweeps and and cheeky um, urchins and all of this stuff going on. But people have ready access to all of those um, to all of those tropes. These sort of shared um, ideas about the Victorian era and um, in the book, I say, and I, and I stand behind it, I think that people have a much better idea of a version, at least, of the Victorian era than they do, say, about you know the 1950s or the 19, 1960s. I mean, unless they were alive then, you know, that's because they've got all of these ideas about the Victorian era have been crystallized. And I think that's a really powerful thing to be able to tap into in a role playing game. Exactly. Um, and plus, I think. The further back we get from something in time, the more interesting it appears to us. I mean, we forget the fact that, you know, life for the Victorians was ridiculously hard. Yeah. yeah. Really, want, would you really want to be around in this time with all the modern conveniences we have? No. I mean, I've kind of gotten used to penicillin, to be honest with you. Mm. I like the fact that, you know, I'm not working for something slightly above slave wages. Right. I like anesthetic with my surgery. Exactly. <laughs> I like surviving surgery. <laughs> yeah, I like not eating the sweepings off the floor and with my with my with my candy and you know like running water and you know a lack of cholera is always you know 
is always appealing. Yeah, it's, it's always the rose-coloured spectacles. You never really see it in, in that. But at the same time, I don't know too many people that, you know, role-play, you know, digging a latrine and Dungeons and & Dragons even. You know, that stuff is never, never comes up. You know, people want to have a good time. They don't want to be bogged down with having children and who lose their arms and weaving machines and stuff like that. You know, nobody, nobody wants to do that. At least I don't want to do it anyway. So if you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose? You know, I, I think I'd have to go with a GM, to be honest with you. I've, I've enjoyed my time as a, as a player. I love it. But as a GM, you know, players create characters. GMs create worlds. Right. I don't know if I've stolen that quote from someone. It sounds like I did. So if I, if I did, you can always shoot me an email and say, that's my quote. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. Um, I've said it a couple of times, but but I'll say it again. You know, why play one character when you can play a thousand? Exactly. So, and I was my last guest, um, Donald, episode ten. Uh, we were talking about uh, if you are you know playing just uh, one character, you know, you can bring a lot to the table. But as a GM, you have that that opportunity to play all these different characters, and you can create your own world. And and he said that his initial reaction was. Uh, to be a player. And then he thought about it and thought maybe it would be better for him to be a GM. But I'm starting to, as I've done a number of these interviews now, I'm starting to get the feeling that, you know, people intrinsically are either GMs or players. They may enjoy both, but when asked that question, they'll they'll always know in their heart of hearts which of the which of the two is true. I've never known anybody that, that falls, you know, like exactly in the middle. You like things about both of them, but if you could only be one, people generally fall on on one side or the or the other. So, yeah, I'm I'm on the GM side there as well. So, what would you say the perfect number of people to role play is? Hmm. You know, I'm going to have to go with you know, including the G with the GM five to six. Six six seems to be a magical number. It works out well for me. That's usually what I set my tables at as the maximum at Gen Con or when I'm uh, putting together a demo game, I usually come up with six characters. Or rather, I usually think of it as six characters plus two extra. I know that's it, but I, I think of them as six. If I can work it with six, that's good. Right. Do you, do you find that that informs the type of game that you run? I know that when it comes to uh, if I run a game for a lot of people, uh, then I have, if there's lots of people, it's more plot, less character development. And if there are fewer people, then it's more character development, less plot. And does that um, tie in a little bit to what it is that you enjoy about role-playing? You enjoy the action more than the, the character development? Or is that just what you've become comfortable with over time? That's just what, I mean, typically I prefer the character development over anything else. I want to know who these characters are. I want to know how they're interacting in my world if I'm running it or if I'm playing. I want to know how my character interacts with everybody else in the world. So I'm definitely, I know I've played all this D&D and I'm sitting here talking about, you know, character development, which sort of seems, you know, pointless sometimes. But uh, that's what I'm interested in. And I've just, I, I work well with that number. I, I suppose four would be a good number too, but six I can deal with easily. Right. So how often do you role-play and for how long? Um, let, let me reverse that. For about how long, I usually prefer to do about four to five hours. Right. If, I'm, 
if I'm a GM, I find that my voice usually gives out after about four hours. Right. Uh, I try not to do too many funny accents, but I have been known to do it before. Uh, so I find that that's usually about the, a good time for me. Right. I, my Ghosts of Albion games, unfortunately, have been very sporadic, very rare. So I only get to I only get to one of those about once every other month. It feels like it's probably even less than that. But at least with my kids, I can play D and D with them. Uh, every other week, sometimes uh, every three weeks. Right. So it's not as often as I would like, but I think when I do get it in, it's usually pretty quality stuff. Right, yeah. Yes. I find that uh, as a GM, if you're doing it all the time, then you know your creative juices can can get spent, and if you're if if you are having to be on all that time, then it's hard not to sort of short circuit. The, um, the subtle nuances that you would put into a game if you didn't, if you were only getting to do it once every, you know, like you say, once every few weeks with any particular game. So, so yeah, there's definitely the opportunity for uh, for burnout there if you're if you're doing it too much, or at least if you're if you're a GM. I'm not sure what it would be like to be a player in a GM a couple of times a week, but um, my suspicions are that it might be a might be a little different. Uh, so, should males play females in role playing games? Sure, why not? Um, since I, I mean, I tend to write a lot about witches in my own games. Right. So if I want to figure out how they work, then I'm going to play test them. Right. And uh, one of my favorite Ghosts of Albion characters that I've statted up for every Victorian system I know of, except for Victoria, and I still have to do it for Victoria, is uh, this little, well, and this makes it harder for Victoria, she's a little street fairy prostitute. And I just, I love her. Uh, Dirty Nell is her name. Right. And I love playing that character. I think she's fantastic. Uh, she's sassy. She's got a no-nonsense attitude. But is, I mean, I hate to set stereotype it as, you know, the hooker with a heart of gold. Um, she's a hooker who has a heart, and she's after your gold. But she's, <laughs> she's still pretty cool, and I like her. Um, and... You know, that's one of the characters who I've often thought, oh, I wonder what she's doing, you know, after the Victorian era, and I haven't actually got around to figuring it out yet. But, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, men playing female characters, I, I've got sisters. I'm married. I've got a mother. I, I know lots of women. I don't know any elves. I don't know any Klingons. Right. Yet, you know, in other games, I'm expected to play those. Yeah, oh, for sure. Nobody can certainly say that you're uh, that you're wrong. Um, the difference between the two, I guess, is that if you're playing a Klingon, then there's not really anybody that can say that you're doing it wrong. And if you're investigating being a Klingon, you're investigating your version of a Klingon. But the difference, uh, as I see it with that and females, is that if you're playing a female, then people do know what the, what they are like and and you're certainly better set than I am because although I'm although I'm married and you know I've had roommates that are female in college I've never actually other than my wife um and my mum I guess uh had to had to live uh live with a female so I don't um I probably don't have the same perspective uh that you do and going along with that I think as a male you'd be ideally situated to be a game master in a game where a male was playing a female. But the point that I've made a couple of times now, I'd be interested to get your feeling on it, is in order to get mileage out of that experience, 
Um, does it require a GM who is uh, empathic, somebody who is actually capable of interacting with your female character in a way that makes the experience meaningful for you? I think, for me, the issue is more, can the GM interact with the character, period? Right. And is, do you understand what this character's motivation is? Do you understand what it is they're trying to do? And, you know, whether that point of view is female or elf or Klingon or what I've run into, you talked about your experiences with World of Darkness. That's the only time I've ever run into a game where someone says, no, you're doing it wrong. I was playing a Verbena in uh, Mage, the original Mage. Right. And uh, telling me I was playing it wrong. It's like, no, I'm not playing it wrong. I'm playing it my way. And, you know, that's just the way it works. So that's been, you know, unfortunately my experience with World of Darkness in that respect. But I find that the more empathic and the more understanding the game master is, the more likely it's going to work out. And interestingly enough, the, the game master needs to be willing to allow the player to play the character the way they want and support them in that. Right. Fortunately, when I'm not when I'm not the game master myself, I have a other guy who's game master uh, both for one of my groups, and he also runs uh, the group that my son is in with his sons, but not you know our collective youngest sons. Right. And he's pretty understanding. He's pretty cool. So he let he's. Uh, he plays a female character in my game, my Ghost of Albion game, which is a fantastic character. I love her to death. And so I think he gets it. I think that's good. Uh, I have, we have a, another player, though, in our group. I could not for the life of me seeing him play a female character. But then again, I also have trouble seeing him play any other character than the character he plays in pretty much every single game that we all play. Right. Yeah, that's I mean, one of the uh, types of uh, things that I identify in the book, that there are people that will play variations of the same character in, in every game that they that they play, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. When it comes to, to role-playing, you know, you just you, you play what you, you enjoy playing, but, but as I say, I see exactly what you mean. It's hard to imagine them doing something completely different. Yeah, I have nothing, I have nothing against somebody who wants to play the exact same character in every single game. In fact, it's... In a, in a certain way, we know that he's gonna. We know that he's gonna play this character correctly, mm. because he defined it so well over the years. I mean, I was talking about Dirty Nell. Mm. I mean, I've written her up different versions now for Ghosts of Albion, Victoriana, uh, Rippers, which is the Savage Worlds uh, Victorian game. Right. And in each one of them, she's slightly different. Um, I'd have to figure out how she would be represented in Victoria. So as soon as I figure that out, I'll. I'll post it and shoot you an email and you can see. Yeah, yeah, I'd be interested to see that. And that's uh, a good tip as well for people who are developing a role-playing system. Take a character that you are familiar with, either something from fiction or (laughs) something from... Uh, your own experience and try and rewrite it in the system that you're running because that will very quickly uh, help to identify any shortcomings you have in the in the skills that you've or, or whatever system you've devised for your uh, for your system. Exactly, well, I totally agree. In fact, uh, since what I usually go for when I'm looking at a new system is, I often joke I usually turn right to the magic system and see what it's like. Right. And if I like the magic system, or if I can replicate. You know the characters 
that I normally use in any system uh, in that, then I'm like, okay, I'll give this one a chance. Right. Well, you may have trouble with Victoria there because there's no there's no rules for magic at all there. As you say, as we were saying uh, prior to recording here, you know, in terms of the scale um, of from magic from high magic through to no magic at all, I think mine's as close as without actually being no magic as, as exists. So you may have trouble with the with yeah. the uh, the magical element of uh, of Dirty Nell, but um, hopefully you'll be able to cover the other stuff with it. Well, with Victoria, I think in Victoria is the is the is the if some and I know that you ask about the elevator pitch. So what I say is, if you want to play Sherlock Holmes in Hound of the Baskervilles, get Victoriana, or excuse me, Victoria. If the if the if the hounds happen to be you know you know vicious werewolves, well then go Savalian. If these if they're werewolves and everybody knows that they're werewolves and you know Holmes and uh, Watson are both decked out with all this magical gear that they purchased from the elves, well, then you're going to play Victoriana. So that's sort of the way the, the scale works out on that. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty uh, pretty astute of you there, Tim. I, I hadn't really thought of it like that before, but yes, that's, that's with, as I say, I haven't read a lot of uh, Victoriana and, and Ghosts of Albion, but taking a look at the, just broadly at the, at the sections, that, that's the impression that I that I definitely have, that, you know, there is a, there is a, a spectrum there from one into the other, and yeah, Victoria does definitely lie at the, the non-magical end, but um, it also brings up another point that I, that I had in the, the book there, and I'd be interested to get your get your take on it um to my mind and, and this goes along with uh with sort of the categories you just defined there you know to my mind there are three different ways that uh that you can play a game in victorian times or in fact in any times you can have the sherlock holmes style story where nothing is actually magic and everything can be explained with logic and then you've got the the sort of extended reality where you know you don't have um everything going crazy um Everybody knows about you know the werewolves and the vampires and, and all that type of uh, that all that type of thing. And then you've got right at the far end where everybody knows about all of this stuff and everything you could possibly imagine is uh, is, is going on. And, and finding where your comfort level lies to a degree can help to decide what's going to be the best game to satisfy those um, needs. And, and which of those three any allegiances you have to your particular system? Thinking back to other games that you've played in the past i'm going to guess that you know the idea where werewolves are secret but they do exist is the is your comfort area yeah i mean that's sort of the basic um conceit behind such games like witchcraft and even you know uh, mage the awakening where all that stuff is real just the normals don't know about it um as opposed to the games, you know, like D&D, where everybody knows everything and there's very little that can, you know, surprise you. Right. In terms of, you know, what's magical and what isn't. Everybody knows werewolves are true, real. Um, I prefer more of the, the Shadow War sort of games where nobody knows for certain what is real and what isn't. So people sort of have this shared belief system of what's real and they sort of go with that. Right. Yeah, like like Major the Awakening, that you were you were saying there. Or did did you play both the because the Awakening I think is the new one, right? And then the Ascension is the is a sort of classic world of uh, darkness. Did you play both games or either of them, in fact? Or you, I, Verbena, you must have played Mage the Ascension, right, with the Verbena? Yeah, I played Mage the Ascension, and I played a Verbena uh, character in that. And when I moved 
And I picked up Mage and Vampire and Witchcraft all about the same time. And I usually do this. When I'm looking for a new game, I'll grab three or four that I potentially will like. And I will play around with them, and I usually end up with one that I stick with. And it turned out to be Witchcraft. So my Verbena in Mage, the Ascension, uh, was recast as a wiki uh, scholar in C.J. Corolla's Witchcraft, who would tr- probably turn out to be, I don't know, I don't know what it was in the new Mage of the Awakening. I l- like the rule system of Mage of the Awakening better than Mage of the Ascension, but I like the background of Mage of the Ascension better than the Awakening. Right. So um, how do you prepare for a game session? Ah... Uh, if I'm, a, if I'm a player, what I do is I make sure that I know all the rules that cover what my particular character can do. And for something like, you know, say D&D 4, that is, okay, so what are my feats? How do they interact with everybody else around me? And there's a lot of metagaming involved in that. If it's for something like Ghosts of Albion, it's, do I have my list of spells? Right. Am I ready to go? If I'm running the game, though, I make sure that I know my adventure inside and out. Usually with Ghosts of Albion, I'm writing my own adventures all the time, but you get back to that creativity thing. It's like, yeah, I couldn't play Ghosts every other week because I'm writing all my own stuff, and I just don't have that much time in the day. And so I just make sure I know it because I know for a fact, and this goes back, and I know you can relate to this, to the my old teaching career, is it doesn't matter what I've planned. The second I sit down the characters are going to go in a completely different direction than I anticipated. Yeah, yeah. I just, I make sure it's like, well, I know that I need them to do this. I need them to talk to the chief inspector, and I need them to see the murder bodies. doesn't matter what order they do it in. Well, no, but I'd at least like to have this one thing happen first. So if they decide, well, I don't want to go to see the chief inspector. Let's go look at the crime scene first. Okay, let me figure out how to redo that. So. Right. Yeah, and and as a as a GM, are you a, a sort of a free form uh, GM, or do you like to um, plot out exactly what color the chairs are and all that sort of thing, or do you just get a general idea of it and sort of let it flow as you uh, as you get there, or do you like write down uh, little notes to yourself, like uh, imagine you know Sherlock Holmes' room and the and you know Guy Ritchie's uh, version of Sherlock Holmes, or imagine you know the the drawing room and you know something else is is that the sort of thing that you do i i I want to make sure that i have some scenes and some situations that i've got pretty well detailed because i know what will happen like for example uh just recently in an adventure i'd mentioned that there were some ley lines uh crossing over this scene where um this person was trying to raise a demon right i drew out the ley lines and once I had done it, I realized, oh, man, without even thinking, I sort of drew it so it ended up looking like it could be the beginnings of a pentagram. Right. What I wasn't trying to do anyway, but my players um, see that stuff, and they're like, oh, that's going to be a pentagram. We need to stop them. They're going to go here. It's like, no, oh, no, no, that's not really it. I at least want to have some things planned out because I know that the players are going to pick up on all sorts of things, and I want to make sure at least that I have my details. Right. But otherwise, it's like, do I know the name of the secu- of the death sergeant? No, I'll make that up when they get there. Right. Is there going to be a death sergeant there? I don't know. It depends on whether or not I'm ready for them to talk to the chief inspector yet. Right. Or 
you know, some things I'll add. And then I may even add entirely new scenes. Or I may decide that, okay, this building is now seven stories. I hadn't really thought about how it was because all I had really planned on them doing was going to see the headmistress in the main office. Right. So, so that sort of stuff changes, you know, as, as needed. Right, right. And I guess that comes from being familiar with your story and having a good idea of where the whole whole thing is going. Right? Having a destination, at least in mind, helps to inform the decisions that you make leading up to that point. Right, exactly. Yeah. So do you or should GMs fudge roles? That's actually a pretty good question. Um, my initial reaction to that is always, no, GMs should not fudge roles. But there's always a but, and that's the problem. I don't like having major plot points or the fate of characters be entirely random. Uh, this is a, with Ghost of Albion, at least, it's a cinematic game. And I don't go to a movie to watch the main character die halfway through it. No. And then just have somebody else show up and take over. That's not a movie. That's not a story. That's, you know, something completely different. That's the news. Yes. And I'm playing the news. I'm playing a movie or I'm playing, you know, an epic story. So instead, if, if, a, if a character makes a really bad role, then I will change the situation subtly so that it, it doesn't derail the fun. I don't want what is going on in the game to stop because of a bad role. Also, if I make a role and it's either for or against the character and it doesn't do anything to move the plot forward or backwards, well, then I'll leave it. If it does move it forward or if it does move it backwards, I have to think, well, sometimes fate is like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that the dice have a part to play. And, and in last week's episode, we talked a little bit about the fudging of roles being to a degree dependent upon the system. And between us, we had this idea that it would depend upon the type of game that you were playing. If you're playing a simulation game, like something like, say, Twilight 2000 or or maybe Han or, or games where there's a lot of very specific roles uh, dedicated to determining what happens in, say, for example, combat, then it's incumbent upon you as the GM to make sure that the simulation is accurate. But if you're playing a game that's at the other end of the of the, the spectrum where you've got a lot of, it's a, or like a narrative-driven game, then uh, my feeling is that, that then the, the pressure falls on you in, in the other way, where it's important for you to make sure that the, the story hangs together and that you're telling a, you know, you're telling a compelling uh, tale. So you know, I, for me, at least, it's a, it's a, it's a really, the answer is it depends. It depends on the, the system that you're, uh, that you're using, the type of game that you're, you're running. Well, and it, something like Ghosts of Albion, too. I mean, players have something called drama points, or if they roll badly, they can throw a drama point and say, ah, but this other thing happens instead. Or, ooh, well, I want to re-roll that. So the players are given a little bit more power above and beyond the random intricacies of fate or the dice. And as the GM, you know, I for the um, adventure I was just finishing up, they the characters had to stop this demon from being summoned. It's always the demon being summoned or something like that. Uh, demons, I tell you, they're I, always trying to get in your business. Exactly, and they're always, you know, stomping all over London. I don't quite get the deal. Tokyo has Godzilla, London has demons, Chicago has uh, hot dogs, I guess. And, uh, 
Liam <laughs> that's right. And uh, the the trouble was is my roles were terrible. I mean, for this guy. I mean, this was the most inept demon on the planet. I swear, I, I could not get a hit in on these players to save, well, to save the demon's life, to be honest with you. Probably could have fudged it to make it a little more a little more dramatic, a little more interesting. But I thought to myself, you know what? These players are rolling good. They're playing good. The demon is doing poorly. Yeah. Maybe underestimated. Maybe the situation is in this particular scene, he underestimated, you know, the players. Yeah, yeah. And that's just the way it happens. Sometimes, you know, this isn't Cthulhu by Gaslight where the characters are going to end up dead, crazy, or, you know, worse. This is Ghost of Albion. We have to expect the players to do well. Yes. You know, in Victoria, we would expect the players to do well as, you know, also, except it wouldn't be a demon, it would be Moriarty. Right. Okay, so who is your favorite villain and why? Well, I think I think probably if, it, if it's not terribly obvious, given the Victorian time and the horror, I think Dracula is the coolest villain ever. And I've always thought that. And it's not because he can... Mostly because he can be, uh, you know, represented in any age, and still be a credible threat. Uh, when I've talked about him in the past, I, I always mention this is a guy who's gone up against Batman, the X Men, Buffy, and has lived to tell about it. And most characters are not going to do that. They're just next in line to die. And, you know, he's he represents everything that the Victorians were working against. He is old world. He is aristocracy. He is evil. He is superstition. And everything that they didn't want to believe in anymore, but they did anyway. Right. And I think that makes him very interesting. Um, you know, other things like, you know, I'm also fairly fond of Lex Luthor. And the reason why that is Lex Luthor is a regular guy. I mean, he's brilliant. He's rich. But he's decided that he's going to go toe-to-toe with Superman, you know, the most powerful superhero in the DC universe. Why? Because Lex thinks he's the good guy. And I think that's always something that's very interesting with, with bad guys. Bad guys are not, oh, you know, I'm maniacally, I'm maniacally evil or something like that. No, Lex thinks he's doing the right thing. Right. He always does. And I think that makes him much more interesting. Dracula, you can all, you can say, well, yeah, okay, he's evil. What does Dracula want to do? He wants to kill your loved ones and eat them. And that's, you know, that has its own interest. That's its own level of threat. Lex is powerful. He's rich. He's smart. Probably has photographic memory. Um, not only is he, you know, good at business, he's a scientist, depending on which version of Lex we're talking about. And he thinks he's the one who's in the right, no matter yeah. what. So that's that. I think makes him fairly interesting. Yeah, to be interesting, I think a villain has got to be not just a force of nature, but needs to be somebody who the players can identify with at least on some level. So uh, Lex <laughs> Luthor, um, as you said, you know, like he believes that what he's doing is is right. It just so happened that the books. Uh, written from the perspective of Spider-Man, uh, sorry, for, of, of Superman. But there's a quote which I think is particularly um, uh, apropos in this instance and applies a lot to villains, is that history is always written by the victors. And because we're rooting for Superman, we see Lex Luthor through Superman's eyes. But if the book were written by 
through Lex Luthor's eyes, the way we'd see uh, Superman's actions might be might be quite different. And I, and I, I think that that's one of the compelling elements of uh, Lex Luthor and other uh, ambiguous villains is that they that they believe what they're doing is correct and they've got a, a series of morals and a way of looking at the world that actually absolutely justifies what it is that they're doing. Well, look at it this way. Lex Luthor is Batman without the psychoses. Hmm. Both are very powerful, very rich, very dedicated in what they're doing. Lex Luthor has decided, oh, there's this alien threat. I mean, this guy with superpowers that none of us can battle is coming to our planet and is now saying that he's going to clean up streets or he's going to do this. It's like, uh, I don't think so. This is a planet full of humans for the most part. And we don't listen to some alien. I mean, Lex Luthor's story from Lex Luthor's point of view is more of the world's where Superman Martian invaders. Right. I hadn't thought about it like that before, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's, uh, it's exactly the same sort of thing. I mean, there's only one of them, but at the same time, it's this alien invasion that uh, you, know, you or, can't do anything about. Or, or any alien invasion movie where the alien is going to kill you. It's Predator. That's what it is. Lex Luthor is the Arnold Schwarzenegger character in Predator, with Superman being the alien, you know, unkill, you know unkillable uh, killing machine going through and just destroying everything. That's what that's all about. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's, that's true. I hate Superman now. Thanks, Tim. I can, no, I can no longer enjoy him. I like Lex, Lex Luthor. In fact, he's not even a villain anymore. I'm going to call, I'm going to rename that section. Who's your favorite uh, hero and why? Um, Who's your favorite hero? So if you could become a character in a role-playing game, what would it be? And that's as in you actually personally could become that rather than you could play that character in a game because you could do that anyway. Right. I think if I were to do that, it would have to be some, some sort of magic-using character. And that's because uh, that I usually gravitate towards characters uh, in my games that I couldn't possibly do in real life. And that magic use is one of them. Right. And it's just, you know, that's the way, you know, I would see it. It's like, okay, so I don't see this. I don't see, you know, these other things happening, you know, but I would like to do, you know, I'd like to see magic and that'd be kind of cool. Um, otherwise, like I said, you know, a fighter, eh, I can pick up a sword. A thief, okay, I could read out of pick locks on the internet or something like that. Sure. Everything. Yeah, nothing else I can do. Uh, like, uh, I think I think when I was younger, one thing I always wanted to be when I grew up was a Ghostbuster. You know, that, <laughs> right on, yeah. After, that is after, you know, I got over my desire to be Batman, I think. Everybody goes through the Batman stage, I think. Yeah, I'm going through it right now. I love Batman because he's, uh, you know, a regular guy um, dealing with irregular stuff. You know, no matter what way he dressed up, he's not actually a superhero. I mean, he's a superhero... Um, you know, in the wider sense of the fact that, you know, like he's a he's a, a hero who, because of his resources, muster up something that uh, the, gen, the, the general public couldn't. But there's nothing magic about him. He can't fly. He doesn't have super strength. He doesn't have any of that stuff. He's a regular guy. And that, that I, that's something about him that I find particularly appealing. Well, now you can say the same thing about Lex Luthor. He's just a regular guy. Ex- exactly. I was going to say... Up until right now, that's when my love affair with Batman is finished, and now I'm uh, now I'm in the Lex Luthor, Lex Luthor camp. So, do you have any dice superstitions? 
Me? No, not really. Um, part of my, you know, I used to be a statistics professor. So if I think a dice is rolling poorly because I know that they're not, there's no such thing as a perfectly created die, I'll sit around and I'll be like, all right, so I've rolled this thing a hundred times now and I've only come up with a 20 on it, you know, twice. Statistically speaking, there's probably something wrong with this one. So I'll put it to the side. I had one that invariably always rolled ones, and I think it's just because it was poorly made. It had a little notch on it. Right. And as my kids say, I, it got banished to the Phantom Zone, which is the space behind uh, my bookcase, in my, <laughs> which we, we, won't, we, we will never be able to get to because uh, we've got these bookcases that we've built into the house. Right. And there's this little gap in between them and the wall. So someday when somebody comes and buys my house and we're all long gone and they move these bookcases out, they're going to find this little twenty blue 20 sided die and they're like, what is this thing? And why is it? <laughs> That's right. And, and, the, and the cycle will begin again. Exactly. Okay. So my last question for uh, this evening is what's your uh, role playing elevator pitch, including your go to example? I think my role playing elevator pitch, I tell what I. If, I, if I'm trying to explain to somebody what it is and I've already got past the point, no, it's not a computer game. No, it's not, you know, a board game. Um, I go usually try to find something that I know they're familiar with. So if I've already got them on the hook that it's a Victorian era game, for example, I say, ah, well, um, so with this game, you'd be able to play something like Sherlock Holmes who can battle Count Dracula. If I'm trying to sell Ghosts of Albion, or if I was going to sit, you know, do Victoria, I'd say you could play Sherlock Holmes and you could battle, you know, Professor Moriarty and you could do it, but you wouldn't have to do it by the stories that have already been written. You could create your own stories and you all get around and I'd say it's sort of like group storytelling. And you use dice to figure out the um, means that you can't all agree on together. Well, it's been great to uh, to talk with you, Tim, and, and yeah, I'd really like to get you back again, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about what it uh, what it takes to uh, put a game together. It's been a real pleasure. And how you can write 500 pages of research notes and only come up with a 200-page game. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Ladies okay. and gentlemen, Tim Brennan. Thanks so much, Daniel. I appreciate it. Talk to you soon. That's it for episode 11 of Penny Red. For any comments or questions about the episode, daniel at hazardgaming.com. On next week's episode, I've got James Milizhevsky, who has freelanced for pretty well all of the major game studios out there. Plus, he has his own game called Thousand Suns, which you can check out at grognadia.blogspot.com. So until next week, keep talking the walk.